Positive Regression, coming to you from the Venue app. I'm Alan Kilmartin, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. And man, we just watched a hell of a race out in Las Vegas. We will use this show to break it all down in a way that you would come to expect from us here at Positive Regression. David, we're not the hot take kind of podcast whatsoever, but we will offer some general assessments of what we just saw. My first tweet was, in a year full of surprises, I think Kyle Larson winning after four races with a new team constitutes a surprise. And I'm not being met with much agreement on there. So I would just love to hear (laughs) your thoughts on that. Are you surprised that he has won this fast with a new team? No. No, I am not, uh, especially when you consider that William Byron won last weekend and you consider that this is a championship winning organization as recently as last year. Uh, I talked about Hendrick Motorsports a little bit in the Motorsports Analytics Discord chat today, uh, specifically about Chase Elliott's team. I think that to be the most well-rounded team right now in NASCAR and organizations tend to pull in the direction of their strongest link. And that's what we're seeing here. William Byron is developing as a racer before our eyes, and his team is starting to resemble something like the nine team. And similarly, we don't think of Kyle Larson as the the road course expert, so maybe let's, let's pull that one out. But the last two weeks... He's been he's been on the hunt. Uh, he's never won at a mile and a half track prior to today, but he's also never had a mile and a half car like the one that he had today. So thoroughly interesting turn of events. Uh, but no, I can't just understanding what Larson is capable of doing based on his peripheral numbers, based on just observation. Uh, no, no surprise at all. Yeah, and it just makes me wonder something you said on, on last week's episode in terms of, you know, at like say a place like Homestead, running the wall is sexy, but people who run the wall aren't the ones that have won those races, right, David? And, and that was Kyle Larson's reputation at a place like Homestead until he's in Hendrick Equipment last week. He didn't run the wall as much, did he? And still had some success. And then he gets to a place like Las Vegas where... You know, not as much success in the past, had never won at a mile-and-a-half racetrack, and goes out there and does it. I think this new team is suiting him quite well. Yeah, so far. And, uh, you know, something new from from Cliff Daniels a little bit, and we'll we'll talk about it uh, when we kind of dive a little deeper here on Larson, but this weekend's race was a race strategized to better suit what Kyle Larson does. I think last week's race was strategy based on what Jimmy Johnson did well because Cliff Daniels didn't deviate much from strategy uh, last week. But this week, firmly entrenched into the middle of the pit windows, especially that first green flag stop, Daniels timed that perfectly. And it resulted in Larson having a five-second lead over Brad Keselowski, and ultimately that was the call that ended up winning or, or cementing that stage two victory. Um, that was an impressive showing. He won the second stage and the race today, and that's about as dominant as you're going to get in uh, in this iteration of the NASCAR Cup Series. We will dig into Larson a little more here in a second, but we can't go without David. Uh, visually, this race was quite pleasing. A lot of that had to do with you know three wide for a few laps, after these restarts, restarts a big deal today. Your thoughts on the restarts of this 550 horsepower track? Because 
they were significant today. Okay, so yeah, let, let's let's talk about them because I think there was some confusion when discussing how much time drivers were spending in the throttle, especially early in the run. Clean air cars can pretty much do whatever they want at some of these 550 tracks, and we saw that today, certainly. But immediately after the restart, important to know that at a track like Las Vegas, it takes about three or four laps to get up to full proper speed. And what we saw today was a good reflection of this. If we consider the restart window to be the two laps following the restart, the first lap I thought was pretty tame. It looked like a high-speed pace lap. There was not a lot of maneuvering. The second lap is when the difference in speed and throttle availability kicked in. And that's a bit of a an isolated quirk for Las Vegas, but there is an underlying commonality to other traditional 550 tracks. So we talked uh, last week about Martin Truex changing spotters from Clayton Hughes to Drew Herring because, in his opinion, restarts on 550 tracks are starting to look a lot like restarts at Daytona and Talladega. And I believe what we saw today was a good example of what he's talking about. On the throttle, without much of a response, and maneuvering to find a hole or grab hold of clean air, that takes some draft-like styling, some maneuvering. I mean, when, when, when drivers are going green, they're hitting the gas. I promise you they're standing on it, but there's <laughs> nothing coming out. Like, there's, there's no response until maybe they get to turn three and four. But even then, as, as, as tight as three and four is at Las Vegas, that is, that, that tends to be where you lift out of the throttle. But on that first lap, they're not. Like, the first 20 cars are in it. So, what we saw was kind of a slow materializing of a restart where it then went from tame to chaotic in an instant. So, Pretty wild stuff. Um, it's going to look a little bit differently as we go forward to other 550 tracks that have their own peccadillos. But, yeah, what what we saw today, kind of a, a good glimpse of what to expect on restarts at 550 tracks where maybe this is the biggest opportunity for scoring track position. Someone right in the middle of all that, of course, was winner Kyle Larson. Let's take a deep dive into him because his driving style uh, has it changed. What has it done? How has he adapted since the switch to the 550 horsepower tracks like like today at Vegas? Because something has changed, new team, what have you. But he is a winner now there, and he dominated, as you said. What? How has his driving style changed since the switch? Yeah, I, I think this is irrelevant question because when NASCAR announced this 5D package, he was the driver for me that came to mind that I was concerned he's going to have to radically alter his driving style. And to some effect, you're still going to have to work the corners as well as you did on the old style package, but it's the smaller things. It's something like a restart where if we consider that restarts previously on the old package, the key to success was creating chaos against calm, then it's it's like that dynamic has flipped. Now it's arguably being calm amid chaos. And when we see 
20, 25 different Kyle Larsons out there. The one true Kyle Larson that we've come to know is kind of watered down and at times lost. When he restarted uh, in that first stage on old tires, he, I mean, he tried, for lack of a better word, he tried to do his, his cowboy shit, his his routine, but other <laughs> drivers were, were doing the same shtick. And if, if you're not holding a line and you're not having the same kind of straight line speed that fresh tires are going to give you, you're going to lose that track position. And he did. He lost track position as the leader based on that call. Now, Cliff Daniels went and made up for it, but that was sort of what we're seeing, the difference between Larson then and now. Now, I see a long-run Larson. I kind of dig long-run Larson. And where Homestead went bad for me, I thought, was that green flag pit cycle that cost them seven spots last week, if I'm correct. I understood the logic behind it because they had a short-run car at Homestead, and what Cliff Daniels was attempting to do was have him on fresher tires to shorten the run to maximize what they had in their car. Well, it didn't work out too, too great, but long run Larson, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of digging. And as long as Cliff Daniels calls a race to suit the car that he's bringing and the driver that he has, I think this is going to work because as the field thins out, as it stretches apart, there's going to be less artificial Larsons and the one true Larson stands apart and he's able to do his groove hunting, what he does, throwing it anywhere. He said, you know, he, he was telling Regan Smith on Fox, he could put his car anywhere and he could. And went, but he also did that. He had speed. He could find speed anywhere. And that's a sign of driver comfort. What we saw today was a driver on ties, uh, tires that were wearing 1.5 to 1.6 seconds at most, completely comfortable late in a run. And that is a dangerous version of Kyle Larson going forward if they're able to continue that on some of these bigger tracks. And now that, look, you, you talked, you gave him all the accolades and what he, you know, the positives that can come out of this strategy and this adaptation. He's in the playoffs now, David. Uh, certainly early in the season, this, this changes the course of a season. We will come back to Vegas again in the playoffs. We know what Hendrick did last year. In the playoffs, certainly a team with all the cars showing some speed. Can we say, is Kyle Larson a championship favorite at this point only because of what he's been able to do early on in this year already? He has the materials at his disposal. And, you know, what I mean by that is if we we do believe that a rising tide lifts all boats, that Chase Elliott's program is now the North Star of how Hendrick is going to operate, in a split horsepower series, then yes, I feel pretty good about it. But even last year, this 48 team was faster at the 750 tracks. Uh, 12th overall, the Jimmy Johnson behind the wheel compared to 15th on the 550 tracks. So they skewed in the direction that matters for championship relevance anyway. And Larson's relationship with short tracks is... Kind of interesting, right? Um, he hasn't he hasn't won outright at Bristol yet, but you could argue that's his best short track just because of what he's able to do. He can take advantage of the corners there. He's going to have a lot of horsepower there, not just in the dirt race, but thinking the playoff race. That's going to come in handy. Uh, Richmond, he's won at Richmond. So in theory, he can accomplish that again with a better team. The track that 
tends to elude his where is Martinsville. And I, I spoke to him about this years ago, and he said that you have to understand when you're a young dirt racer in these open wheel cars at these big banked tracks, you're learning how to work corners with banking, with drivable high grooves. Martinsville is counter to anything he's been taught. Uh, for him, I mean, he, he's not a road course guy. He didn't drive go-karts. He, th- th- this is all new. He's practically coming to a stop and then getting back into the gas and trying to find drive off. And that's nothing like he's ever been taught. And not to say that he won't ever understand Martinsville properly, but it is something that takes time. I would argue he might be with one of the best teams to have figured out that track in recent times. So we'll see. As of right now, among the among the winners and the known playoff uh, participants that we have, I, I think, yes, he's, he's probably the favorite until uh, some of the other usual suspects uh, come to victory lane. Yeah, I think we have to consider him. And um, and I see some early returns on, on our poll that we've asked here on Venue. Uh, are you surprised that Kyle Larson won this early in 2021? Alan, it's 50-50, yes and no. So I saw I, that. Our we don't actually have an answer to that question, but uh, I'm, I'm going to – can I just skew the vote? I'm going to say no, and that wins. Oh, okay. Damn it. Damn it. I, well, don't I even it out? Because I was a yes. Oh, okay. All right. Then we're back to 50-50. <laughs> oh, man. That's, uh, maybe we found a bug in venue. We need to have an odd number of participants in any sort of poll, just in case. The first ever poll, maybe in venue history, was a tie. So uh, we'll figure that part out. But all right. So, yeah, congrats to Kyle Larson. A lot to look forward to, even early in the season. Uh, he can already start thinking championship. Think about that, David. Already two Hendrick Carr's locked in to the championship. Not too bad. Uh, finishing a somewhat close second. I mean, it's certainly a competitive second. And someone who needed it, David, uh, Brad Kislowski came home in the runner-up spot. A strong day all around, really, for Penske pound for pound. I mean, Ryan Blaney started in the back of the field and just drove up to the front. Best showing of the year, I believe, for him. Brad Kislowski showing some muscle at times, being there out front. Uh, again, this is a type of track and type of performance, frankly, we expected at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, right? I mean, anything short of a win may be a disappointment in their eyes at a track like this. But Brad Kozlowski, he was fast. How do you assess what we saw out of them? Because normally, you know, at least last year, we associated them with 750 horsepower tracks. And that's where their success was. But they showed a lot of strength today on this track at Las Vegas. We spent time this week on positive regression. We spent a lot of time talking about Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano and their success at Las Vegas, but the common denominator between them was Paul Wolf. Well, that was a Jeremy Bullins car that turned in the fastest median lap time unofficially. And Alan, that means that the fastest 1.5 mile car he's, uh, he's had since the change to 550 horsepower. I mean, wow. a, a pretty, a pretty impressive day. For a driver like Keselowski, who, uh, oh, let's call a spade a spade. He's a motorsports analytics patron, and he's well aware that he doesn't have week-to-week elite speed like some of his competitors. But he's also uh, a driver who gives a lot of thought to this. He probably thinks about front-end geometry more than than most drivers. So this is something that has bugged him for quite a while. Even even if 750 horsepower is the pathway to a championship, every driver wants to compete for a win. And they want to be good everywhere. They want to contend for wins everywhere. Well, 
this is interesting. This change, uh, and, th- and, and also couple this with the Homestead performance that was better than it looked last week. He was in, I mean, he was in eighth place and he had to adhere to a weird strategy that placed him 16th. Um, coupled these two races, all of a sudden he's got something to work with sort of as a foundational 1.5 mile setup. That's interesting. You know, we wondered coming into the year whether anyone could take on Kevin Harvick in sort of this all-around mastery role, and Brad Keselowski doing it with Penske, a team that really hasn't been that elite week-to-week team in a number of years. They're, They're... Coming out now with a ton of firepower and it's, it's intriguing. And oh, by the way, Brad Keselowski's contract is up after this year. So it would benefit him to have an impressive year just as a reminder that, oh yeah, he's one of the six or seven drivers that can consistently compete for multiple wins every single season. Uh, we tend to lose sight of that, but that's why we call him old reliable on positive regression. He, he is that guy. Sometimes you just have to throw that reminder out there and hope it sticks. Uh, there was a moment in the race, a pit call where you know, there was different strategies and David, while Joey Logano wasn't really much of a player, right. To or competitor for the win, not as strong as some of these other cars, but the Hamlin's Kozlowski is obviously Larson's of the world. Uh, he did what Joey Logano does best, and I, I just like seeing that reflected in the pit call from Paul Wolf because on older tires, Joey Logano did what he does best, got a great restart, and then defended the hell out of faster tires behind him for, frankly, a long time, like we saw in Kansas last year. I just like seeing a, a crew chief using the strengths of their driver to uh, to the best of their ability. That was that was a smart call, I thought, on, on his part. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about that one. Where where did he jump from? He was 11th to 2nd yes. on the restart, right? So he was out on 20-ish lap old tires against a field. I would actually say that that worked out well because there's still a lot of time left in the stage. He retained the lead for a solid 10 laps after the fact. It earned him... I think nine spots initially, but he netted out two by the end of the stage. So, you know, a net gain is a net gain. But I believe this this was the singular move that informed crew chiefs to potentially askew any late race stop. Because a good restarter like Logano, holding his line, not what Kyle Larson was doing, holding his line with workable speed and clean air, that should have been enough to defeat fresher tires and yeah, I mean, it was, it was good. Cliff Daniels made the same call for Larson, but Larson did Larson stuff and was a little bit too adventurous. Uh, and then the dirty air didn't help him. But in regards to, um, in regards to the speed, he was on even footing for a while, certainly longer than it would take for an overtime restart to play out. I would suggest that that was the rabbit that we saw in this race. I think Paul Wolf was on his way to calling a good day that just kind of went south. And, you know, I I, I spent some time um, taking Penske Crucis to the woodshed last week, so let's celebrate Mm -hmm. them when they do things well, right? One of the strengths of the Penske Crucis, like why they are employed, is that historically Penske cars get faster as races progress. 
It helps to have smart crew chiefs. It helps to have drivers in the seat that can articulate what's going on with a car. And on fly, they're trying to remedy everything while also adjusting to a track and competitors that are also trying to do the same thing to them. They tend to do this. And that's what Jeremy Bullins did today. Brad Keselowski's fastest lap of the race came with 52 laps to go. And that was in the middle of a run. It was a, it was a pretty impressive showing of speed. It's a shame that they didn't get the win. There was a better car on the day, but they, they went out today and proved that they have speed that can probably translate to most mile and a half tracks, which makes me think, uh, Keselowski is at least in a good situation for maybe a year that, that's better than we projected, expected. I don't know. All right. We've covered. The winner, Kyle Larson. We've covered second place, Brad Kislowski. Let's move on to third place, Kyle Busch, because third place isn't all that impressive for Kyle Busch. But when you consider, David, that apparently he had the 10th fastest car in the race and still finished third, I think that's pretty impressive. That is Kyle Busch doing his thing. Now, this all comes despite him having quite the day inside the cockpit and on the radio. If you missed it, it featured quotes like, same old effin' S every effin' week, every effin' year. Also, <laughs> plowing ass effing tight, slow as effing molasses, which must be pretty slow. Despite all that, despite the consternation and entertainment on the radio, again, he came home finishing third, even had a smile on his face for the post-race interview. David, how do you assess a mercurial driver such as Kyle Busch? We've talked about him before. Complains about passing, yet is the best passer. Something to that effect. We've talked about it on the podcast before. Um, you just, I don't know. It's, it's some of these guys, it's like a genius who's never satisfied, right? It's never quite right enough, but he's still pretty damn good. Uh, in, in maybe what was my first day on the job at the athletic a few years ago, I was sitting next to Jordan Bianchi. Kyle Bush came into the Charlotte Media Center and it was, it was an interesting press conference. He got really nerdy in some of the details. And I told Jordan that Kyle Bush is Kobe Bryant. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of that mentality of screw everyone else in the world. I'm only here to win races. Anything else beyond that is a failure. And when you consider that and you consider that, yeah, like him or hate him, he's probably a genius behind the wheel. And he he was peripherally very good last year, despite very likely giving up on his team. I, I know it was after the Roval uh, race in which he was bounced from the playoffs. Uh, Jeff Gluck asked him whether he thought he was going to win a race at all last year. And he said, no, no chance. Uh, now, he, he eventually did win a race, but he's hard. He's hard on everyone. He's hard on himself. And that permeates, especially in the throes of competition on the radio. Comments do not necessarily reflect reality. And today, look, you're going to talk about a veteran showing, trying to figure out a finish with a car that might not totally be optimized. It's the 10th fastest car. He finished fourth in the race. So... You can argue hard that Kyle Busch overachieved today, and that's just Kyle Busch being Kyle Busch. He makes fast cars faster. Now, is there a lot to work on with Ben Bishore? Of course there is. Ben Bishore missed all of last year. He didn't have time on this tire. He's never 
thoroughly competed with 550 horsepower. This is something new to him. Uh, I, I mean, I know that he's worked with Kyle Busch in the past in the Xfinity series, but it's a different car. This is a different beast. There's a lot to work on there. My argument for that is that Ben Bishore isn't here to win races with Kyle Busch on 750 tracks, or on 550 tracks. He's here to win on 750 tracks, the kinds of tracks that suit what Kyle Busch does best, just in terms of surplus passing. In 2019, before the downforce change, he led the series in surplus passing. He complained about it being too difficult to pass. They changed (laughs) the rules, and he still was the best passer in 2020 post-rules change. He put up instead of shutting up, frankly. So right now, what we're seeing, if if he's going to get decent results on 550 tracks and then win races on 750 tracks, this is icing on the cake what we're seeing from him. It just didn't necessarily fall in his favor for all 400 miles of this one. But I mean, how, how many of these races routinely do that for anybody? Not many. So, I mean, I, if I'm him, I think I'm pretty happy with the takeaway today and the finish was solidly strong. I think all JGR cars had significant long run speed, closing speed, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, he still made hay out of it. So I would, I would say that his, uh, his impact is going to be felt at some points this year. And, uh, this was merely the start. And frankly, I'm glad he's not shutting up because he's very entertaining on the radio. So it gives us something <laughs> to talk, laugh and tweet about. All right. Finally, a special shout out to Eric Jones because David, you pointed out, you know, we chat throughout the race and you have such an insight into this. But uh, unexpected speed from some of the RCR cars, but that certainly included the affiliate of RPM and the 43 and Eric Jones. And, and even having an incident mid-race, uh, despite showing all that speed, I kind of wrote him off. I mean, he was having such a great race, then he had that incident and went to the back. I wasn't sure that he was going to be able to make the comeback, and there he is finishing 10th. Uh, strong race, strong run. We, we've talked about him in our season preview on positive regression about the uphill battle that he would have at RPM being probably the best asset that team has, right? And what, how they would rely on him and his talent. Well, they had some speed today and combine those two together and he has a top 10 finish. Your, your just immediate thoughts on Eric Jones. What a race. You know, I mean, sometimes you kind of have to make things happen with a car that you wouldn't expect to accomplish anything. And, RCR, uh, that whole program showed up, I, I would say, prepared, at least off the truck as, as best as you can call that. The two RCR cars ranked 10th and 11th in median lap times during that initial run. So that was interesting. But even more interesting was Eric Jones had the second fastest lap time of that initial run uh, even though he had the biggest deviation between his lap times, he was able to rip off a clean lap really early, which was kind of puzzling. But he went somewhere with that speed. He d- he made something out of it. And a 10th place finish is certainly beyond the expectation here. And let's not forget the, the magnitude of of what this could mean or what more results like this could mean for Eric Jones. I just put up a poll in um, in the venue app asking whether Eric Jones would return to RPM in 2021. Most of you said yes. I'm going to hit you with a caveat. He does have an opt-out in his contract after this year. 
Um, that has been confirmed to me by uh, someone close to the organization and the driver. Um, kind of interesting, Alan. I mean, a lot of things are going to have to occur in order for him to opt out, to take advantage of that. One, there's going to have to be good rides come available. But two, he's going to have to have the kind of obvious performances, such as the one we saw today, that make his talent undeniable. We beat the Eric drum, uh, Eric Jones drum so much on positive regression, talking about his advanced stats. Well, it's not entirely clear that decision makers pay attention to advanced stats. They have to answer, <laughs> but but they have to answer to sponsors. And sponsors, if you're not winning a race, they want to understand why you're not winning races. So the the conversations that are being had about driver selection are far different than the conversations that we have on this podcast. And that's where Eric Jones is going to have to say, okay, I'm going to have to stand on my head. Yes, I might be the best surplus passer in the world right now. Also, no one probably cares other than the, <laughs> the listeners of one niche podcast. He's going to have to have performances that when some of these bigger teams are walking away from the track, they look at the scoring pylon and say, holy crap, the 43 car finished in the top 10? Okay, all right, sure. Like, we got we got beat by the 43 car. That's what it takes. And for him to do that, it's just going to have to be these Herculean efforts. I mean, it's, it's going to be really hard. It's tough sledding. That is a very small, thin operation at RPM, just in terms of personnel, they they need more bodies in the shop, right? Like they just they need a brain trust that they don't they don't necessarily have. And if you're RPM and you're just biding this time, waiting to get to this next gen car that everyone thinks is going to be the you know fountain of youth or something or or a, or a pathway to riches, you want to keep this low-key potential star driver for as long as you can, you might not want to show everything you have with this driver. But it also could be a marriage of convenience. It, it, it might even be possible that Eric Jones is just too rich for RPM beyond this year. So it benefits everyone there for for him to have the best possible season just to see what can come next because Jones can, yeah, can, can get a better ride. But if RPM is at least able to prove, Hey, we can make uh, a few changes. I mean, they, they bought in technologically to what Chevrolet is doing with pit strategy this year. They've got a driver who came from a bigger organization who knows all the latest tricks of the trades and is probably helping them on their front end geometry. If I had any guess, then yeah, they can improve from this one year with a really good driver that they probably just wouldn't get otherwise. And if it ends up becoming a long-term relationship, then they're all the better for it. But you you have to wonder what comes next with Eric Jones. I would say that our, our path to getting there comes from performances like this. David, great stuff. Uh, the, the the news that uh, Eric Jones has an opt out after this year got some good reaction uh, live in the venue app as we as we did this. And uh, David, I gotta say, this has been a fun, positive experience after a fun weekend out uh, in Vegas watching the racing action and being able to record this uh, post race kind of instant analysis. 
it's something I, I hope that we do again, and uh, it's been a very cool experience uh, for me as well, and just for us, I think, uh, listening along while uh, we, we did this live and had the interaction with everyone in the venue app. So I, I think we should do this again. Uh, do not forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. Really cool if this is the first time you are experiencing our podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff really does help in spreading the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have questions, we love to hear them. More importantly, we love to answer them. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got up next this week? Ooh, a lot of front-facing stuff here, but this week on Forbes Sports, looking at potential free agency disruptors, one of them is Eric Jones, another is Ryan Priest, and I want to write about them because I think they have a big year ahead of them. Uh, for NBC Sports, as always, the big third-day column and uh, the race preview next Sunday in advance of Phoenix People, these aren't your usual race previews. Uh, I'm trying to reinvent uh, what that lazy term means. Uh, I'm putting my all into those articles. A lot of good nuggets, especially if you are uh, as nerdy of a, of, a, of a NASCAR observer as Alan and me. Uh, I think you will enjoy those. And, uh, oh, by the way, we will be recording an episode of Positive Regression. So they are available wherever you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe, listen, we'll have some fun. Great stuff as always, and uh, Kyle Larson winning. That will certainly prompt the next YouTube video from my page, Alan Cavana Media on YouTube, so make sure you check that out. And check out uh, NASCAR.com every week because uh, I host the Fantasy Live Show along with Amy Long, getting you ready to set those lineups, get you maximum value out of each start because there's a lot of fun strategy. To help you win the week, I hope we can provide you the smallest bit of service over at NASCAR.com and Fantasy Live. And, of course, make sure you listen and subscribe for that next episode of Positive Regression coming to you every Thursday morning. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on the Venue app for this special post-race edition of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We'll catch you next time. U.S. Army, you can make a choice to make your mark. With over 200 fields to choose from, you can join forces with us and take on anything. Visit GoArmy.com to answer, what's your warrior?